Hi, this is Jeff Steele. Today we're reading Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. And I'm just going to tell you at the beginning, this is one of those stories that I consider to be just a little bit strange sometimes. Whenever I come up on a story like this, and it makes me think, why is this story in the Bible? I have to stop and ask, okay, what's going on in the larger text that this story is illuminating for me? In other words, why did the author, Luke in this case, choose to place this story at this point in the text? Now, remember that we're beginning to see the church scattered at this point in Acts. And interestingly enough, we see how God has prepared them for this scattering before it even happened. So remember in chapter 6, when there was a dispute about distributing food to widows, right? The apostles appointed seven men to oversee the food so that then the apostles could be free to do what they were called to do. Now, one of those seven men was Stephen, who we just read about earlier this week as he preached a masterful sermon in chapter 7, defending his faith in Christ. And then yesterday, we read about his death at the hands of an angry mob. So, chapter 6, we chose seven men. Chapter 7, we told the story of one of those men, Stephen. Now, today in chapter 8, we're going to continue the story with another one of those seven men, a man named Philip. Now, when Stephen was killed, the church was scattered, and that included Philip. And chapter 8 is going to tell us a little bit about how Philip spread the gospel as, we, as he went. Now, here's what I love about this. Okay, in Acts chapter 6, they needed to solve a problem, so they appointed seven leaders. But guess what? That problem was only a preparation for the real mission that would come later. The reason I love this is because so many times that's how I see God working in my own life. I see a need or feel called to a particular thing, and so I follow God there only to discover later that God was using that thing to lead me to something else entirely. I'll often say that I tend to see God's plan for my life only in reverse, that when I end up somewhere, I can then look back and say, oh, right, so that's where God has been leading me this whole time. So in Acts 8, we see Philip, prepared by God through leadership in the church, now taking the gospel to Samaria and beyond as the church is persecuted and scattered. Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone, from the least to the greatest, often spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. 
But now the people believed Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles that Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, May your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. Now, there are a lot of things going on in this text, so I'm going to do my best to focus on just a couple of them. Be aware, Philip is kind of breaking some new ground here. We should, we should be aware of that. He's in Samaria dealing with Samaritan people. And at this time, good Jewish people really hated Samaritans. Even though Samaritans followed the Jewish religion, they worshipped the same God and held to the same Old Testament, they also brought a lot of other cultural baggage with them that the Jews disagreed with. So they were considered more half-breed Jews, and Jews did not associate with them. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whenever there are Samaritans present, the Jewish people shun them. Jesus was really doing something radical every time he interacted with Samaritans. And the parable that he taught uh, that we now know of as the Good Samaritan, well, that was considered really offensive in his day because Jews would never consider Samaritans to be good. Philip goes to the Samaritans and preaches the gospel to them, and they accepted it with eagerness, and many were baptized. Now, in some ways, this story of the gospel taking root in half-Jewish Samaria might actually be setting the stage for an even more dramatic turn that'll be coming up a couple late chapters later in Acts. But in Samaria, there's this interesting thing happening in verse 9. There's a man named Simon who's considered to be a sorcerer and has been impressing people with his great magic. Now, Magic is something that wielded considerable influence in the ancient world. People who were considered magicians or spiritists or who could do amazing things were regarded as important people, or at least somebody who should be respected. Now, before we dismiss this as merely ancient superstition, we should probably recognize that this is really still the case in many parts of the world. Think about witch doctors and healers. When my wife and I, many years ago, we traveled to Haiti and we saw firsthand the people's continued devotion to magical arts. Voodoo is widely practiced in Haiti uh, 
to this day. As a matter of fact, we were staying on the roof of a large missions complex. And uh, one night, it was after dark, and uh, we looked over the wall into the street directly below us, and we could see and hear the procession of voodoo worshipers coming down out of the hills and making their way through the street right next to the mission. Now, imagine that you are an educated intellectual American (laughs) who believes that God is greater and stronger than any so-called voodoo magic, but you're in the dark in a country far from home where they're practicing their magic right in front of you. Would that make you a little bit nervous? I have to admit, even though I have faith in the one true God, I was still a little bit nervous to be that close to it. Even though I know it's primitive and it's, it's superstitious, there's something about uh, the proximity with these uh, so-called magical arts is a little bit unsettling. So in those days, when Philip is preaching in Samaria, understand that Simon was a really big deal. And when Philip came into town preaching another way, teaching about Jesus, who was really the true king and and performing miracles, in many ways, this would be considered in direct opposition to Simon. And the result is that we see even Simon himself is baptized. The one who had held the people in amazement at his magic. Now the Bible says he was the one who was amazed. And he followed Philip around in order to learn from him. Now, that part makes a neat and tidy story that we can tell to our kids at Sunday school, right? The man who followed magic learned to follow Jesus instead. But that's not the end of the story. The apostles heard about what was happening in Samaria, and so they sent Peter and John to investigate and be a part of it. And when they got there, they found that the people had been following Jesus, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John went around laying their hands on people and praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit. So because they laid hands on people and the Holy Spirit came on them, this really piqued the interest of the magician. Understand what magic really is. It's a collection of rituals and formulas that the magician uses in an attempt to control the world, right? You want it to rain, you say a spell that causes rain. You want someone to be healed, you recite an incantation and then they will be healed. That's how you practice magic. So from the magician's perspective, what was happening? The apostles laid their hands on people and the spirit was given. Well, now the magician cannot resist this and he offers them money to give him the same power. In pagan magical practices, buying power with money was not uncommon. Probably Simon was doing what he had always done. You could purchase spells or magical scrolls. You could pay to become a priest of so-and-so and have the authority to practice your magic. But Simon, uh, excuse me, but Peter makes it very clear that what Simon is doing here is very, very different than anything he's known before. He says, may your money perish with you. It's a bold statement, and his judgment of Simon is equally harsh. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what happened to Simon. He asked Peter to pray for him, but did he really repent of his sin? Did he recognize the error of trying to hold on to his familiar ways of magic and just adding a little Jesus to it? 
Was he truly repentant to believe to begin with, or was he still just after the power that he saw? We can speculate, but we don't really know because Luke doesn't tell us in Acts. The impression that Luke leaves us with in the story is this, though, that the Holy Spirit is not something that can be controlled with a magical formula. The Spirit does what he wants. He goes where he wants, and he leads us where he wants. We don't control him. The superstitious parts of us, the parts that want control maybe to try to manipulate the Spirit of God a little bit, don't we? If, if I pray the right prayer and, and use the right words, then God is obligated to answer me, right? Or if I fast or give up the right things for Lent or whatever, then maybe that will buy me special favor with God and he will answer my prayer. But God is not a superstition, The Holy Spirit is the power of God that we listen to, we dwell in, and we ask him to lead us. The Spirit is not a ticket to power or a better life or simply answers to prayer. There are a couple of other instances in the book of Acts where people approach God a little too casually or as if he's simply a a means to their own ends, and it never goes well. This is one of those times. So all of that, (laughs) what about you today? As we practice listening to the text and listening to the Spirit, are there places in your own life where you can see your tendency to control rather than to listen? Can you see places in your life where God might be seeking simply obedience, that he's using circumstances to prepare you for what might be coming? What do you feel the Spirit is saying to you today? Where do you see God working in your life and how will you respond? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we listen to you, to what you want to say and to where you want to lead. God, may we give up the control. May we give up the illusion of control, rather, and instead listen to where you're leading us and to to who you want us to become. God, teach us that and show us that today as we listen to you in your name. Amen. Have a great day.